0: It's Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. It doesn't seem like longtime TV producer Norman Lear and constitutional rights advocate Kazir Khan have much in common. Lear is Jewish. Khan is Muslim-American. Lear grew up in Connecticut, Khan, in Pakistan. But both men knew from an early age that American democracy meant freedom. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from onstage events held by the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Ideas Festival. It took place in June 2017. The Aspen Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values based leadership and the exchange of ideas. When Norman Lear was nine years old, his father went to prison. In civics class at school, he was learning about the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, and the Declaration of Independence. These historical texts provided comfort.
1: Those words were it gave me all the strength I needed when I felt, when my, uh, I mentioned my father being away, and I needed the, the strength that those documents gave me.
0: Across the world, Khan lived under martial law and feared he would be shot if he spoke his mind. In high school, he says his freedoms were ripped away in the name of religion. Then in college, he read the Declaration of Independence.
2: I used to dream After reading those documents, is there a nation on Earth? Are there people on this planet Earth with these rights and privileges that are guaranteed to them?
0: Eventually, Khan would meet Norman Lear. In the 1970s, Lear's All in the Family broke ground by tackling issues like racism, homosexuality, and religion. Wait a minute, wait a
3: minute, Dad. Just because you're an atheist, you know, don't mean that my grandchild's got to be jipped out of his religion.
0: One year after its final season, Lear started the progressive advocacy group People for the American Way. Now, Kazir Khan is on the board of the organization. In this discussion, led by Aspen Institute CEO Walter Isaacson, the men talk about their childhoods, military service, frustrations with Washington, and how a common humanity can break down barriers. For Khan, this conversation is his 126th public appearance, a milestone, he says, in his work to promote the Constitution. Norman Lear, who's 95 years old, starts with a joke.
1: Well, it occurred to me, I noticed, that uh, people didn't start to stand up until Mr. Khan came <laughs> And that, and that, frankly, pisses me off. <laughs> I had the exquisite pleasure of dining uh, with Mr. Kahn. My, my daughter and her husband are here, and we all had, and my associate, Laura. And we had a lovely dinner, and I loved him before I knew him. And I met him at a board meeting of people before... That he has been to hundred and eighty one of these sessions or or, or a I never said I was good at math <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway it uh, it thrills me to be with him and uh the memory of him uh in the last
3: uh
1: oh. some years is just
3: Let let me start with you, if I may, which is the role of popular culture can play. Ever since you did All in the Family, you've been trying to help America understand its values. What role should popular culture be playing now in this problem?
1: Uh, God, where to to start? Uh, When People for the American Way, since we mentioned People for the American Way, when it started, I started in 1980, I did not sit down any day of my life and decide to start an organization. I was, at that time, terribly troubled by the onslaught of uh, television evangelists, televangelists all over the tube. This is when Pat Robertson and Jerry Falwell and uh, you know, so many others were getting started, proliferating everywhere and uh, mixing politics and religion and the mixture of politics and religion. Ever since I was nine years old, I'm cutting, I'm cutting through a lot of stuff, and my father went to prison, I was alone at, with an uncle, another uncle, my grandparents eventually, and I learned at the same time that I was Jewish and what that, not. I didn't learn at that time, but what it meant because there was a Father Coghwin talking mm-hmm. uh, antisemitism on the tube and with, Uh, so the fact that I was taking civics classes in public school I don't know of a public school that teaches civics today but civics were, you know, every public school taught civics and I knew about my constitution the declaration of independence and the guarantees against this that my country promised this is what America was to me And uh, when People for America Way was a year old, we did a, uh, I, I did a special on ABC called I Love Liberty. And the, what I wished to do in that show was to take the flag and the Bible back from the right for everybody. I didn't wish to take it back for me or for, you know, some, but for everybody. The flag in the Bible, and I think it's true today, belongs more to the right. We don't claim it, we on the left. We don't claim God. We don't claim religion. We don't claim the way they do on the right. We don't claim our government, our country, our America. And uh, I couldn't get it on the air unless I proved to be nonpartisan going in. I I got Gerald Ford and Lady Bird Johnson to co-chair that show, I had uh, Barry Goldwater and Jane Fonda on the same stage, and John Wayne, and we talked about the flag and the Bible. There were, you know, every Barbara Streisand and uh, was involved in the show. Everybody was in the show, and uh, if we need anything in in terms of media today, it's that representation. It's our America. It's all of these things belong to us. And we're not, we're not keeping our promises as well. We're not keeping our promises, I should put the period
3: there. Kazir. Mm-hmm. Um, little applause. Yes. <laughs> Your native land, Pakistan, was born out of religious strife and the mix of religion and government. Wasn't it? the war, splitting it off from India. Uh, Then you come to America and you're looking at what is supposed to be a society in which religion doesn't mix and people aren't judged by their religion. Uh, What has happened and what particular advice do you have from us having seen what can happen when it goes
2: really wrong? Thank you for asking that uh, wonderful question close to my heart that uh, I grew up in Pakistan. During my high school days and my law school days, we had two martial laws. Two military rulers took away all of our civil liberties. The second one, the worse, used the name of the religion to take away all of our freedoms in the name of religion. I could not come out of the house without the fear of being shot. I could not speak as I speak here now, there without the fear of being hauled to the jail and put in the prison. I have seen what it feels I have gone through, how it is to not have these dignities and these privileges. I call them dignities enshrined in our constitution The First Amendment. The Fourteenth Amendment, my most favorite. The rest of the amendment, these are all dignities that I read the Declaration of Independence when I was in law school in Pakistan. I was so taken by the similarities of our past, how subcontinent was treated by its colonists, how America was treated, and how quickly America found the solution in the form of articles, the Constitution, and then directly answered to the Declaration of Independence and its atrocities, this blessed nation found the amendments, the dignities enshrined in those amendments. I used to dream. After reading those documents, is there a nation on Earth? Are there people on this planet Earth with these rights and privileges that are guaranteed to them, that their government will not interfere in their life, that religion will be kept totally separate from the rule of law, from the law, and from the government? It was a dream. When I became citizen of the United States, I took the oath and every word of it to my heart that the dream that I had then 30 years ago has come true. I have become citizen of the most dignified and privileged nation on planet Earth. You take these privileges and these immunities enshrined in the Constitution, enshrined in Bill of Rights, to the darkest corner of the world, assemble people, tell them what it means they all would like to have those dignities. We are so blessed. I am so blessed. I am most grateful. The reason for this passionate, continuing to speak at the risk of threats at the risk of our peace and privacy, that passion comes from fully cognizant of what it means to have these values, what it means to not have these values. I am concerned. I am uh, uh, hopeful to some extent when I see the leaders like you two sitting here concerned citizen of the United States sitting here. I have spoken in front of conservatives, Democrats, Republicans. They have stood up and had asked me that question, what you just asked. My answer to them was, let's remain faithful to our values. Let's remain faithful to the dignities that are enshrined in these documents. Two tables full of veterans stood up at one of the speaking engagements in Iowa said, Mr. Khan, we have voted for Donald Trump. Where is our employment? One of the veteran, a lady, pulled her sleeve and said, Mr. Khan, you see these two marks? These are my dialysis marks. I am concerned. I don't sleep well. I am worried about my Health care, where is my health care? I was guaranteed when I went to vote for him. I assured her, I said, call your senator, call your congressman, speak to them that you want to hear their voice in favor of your concern about your concern. That is what is taking place. That is what gives me hope. That is what is the solution to the problems that we face. This world, sorry to be giving you a longer answer, but it comes from this aching heart because I full well know what is enshrined in our values, the human dignity, to uplift mankind to a better place. I humbly suggest the world is divided between two groups today. First group is authoritarian group, authoritarian leaders, authoritarian regimes dictating what rights their citizens will have, what rights their country will have, who will govern them. On the other hand, we have right of self-determination. We have democracy where where people elect their leaders. We make mistakes, as we have made last year. We make mistakes. But there is a solution to make it correct. It is that right to make it correct that our enemy wants to take it away from us. This Russian saga and scandal is serious, very serious. Russia has not forgotten the disintegration of Soviet Union. Their leaders have not forgotten that America took and played a major role in its disintegration. Therefore, let's be on watch. Let's guard it. Let's promise ourselves we will not let it happen. Article 2, Section 2 mandates the President of the United States as Commander-in-Chief to defend against the threat, to defend this nation against the threats, foreign or domestic. We have foreign threats. Yet our commander in chief refuses to acknowledge it. We demand that he acknowledge it. We have internal <laughs> threats. We have internal threats from racist element of this un American hate against the people of faith, against Muslims, against my Jewish brothers and sisters, against my other minorities. Minority, minorities are under threat. Commander in chief utters no word. He is in violation of Article 2 and Section 2 of United States Constitution.
0: It's Aspen Ideas to Go. Thanks for listening. Our sister podcast, Aspen Insight, is out with a brand new show. The episode, Speaking Up, highlights the Me Too movement. Our colleague and longtime women's rights activist, Peggy Clark, says the solution to eliminating sexual assault and harassment begins with men thinking differently about gender. I look at younger generations of men, and I see that they've grown up with a different kind of a set of expectations of women in leadership positions and um, women owning assets and and women um, having political power. Find the show by searching Aspen Insight on your favorite podcast app. And find it on Twitter by searching hashtag Aspen Insight. Now back to today's discussion. Here's Walter Isaacson.
3: How can uh, Democrats and liberals recapture a narrative that seems to have been lost in the sense of we are defending American values, this is the American way. That's what you started to do in 1980 but as you said in your opener, there's been a disconnect with how liberals and Democrats speak to this country. You're the best storyteller. Tell us how it should be done.
1: <laughs> uh, I don't know if I'm the best storyteller I can tell I, I see, uh I see a Democratic party that doesn't stand, if it stands for anything, it doesn't stand for enough. I don't, see a, uh, I don't see a fight going on in the Congress. I see a movement occurring that's spreading out of the Congress to the people of the United States. I don't know what that percentage is, 30 some three percentage are Trumpians. And, uh, and I, I look at it and I think well, what is so attractive on the other side? I come up with Elizabeth Warren. That's, nobody agrees with that. Nobody hears that. Uh, I, don't, I don't know what, let me go back some. Uh, I said, I mentioned that I took uh, civics classes in school. I can't overstate what that meant to me. I was in love as a child, as a boy, as a growing young man with the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and the Bill of Rights; those words were—they gave me all the strength I needed when I felt, when I uh, mentioned my father being away, and I needed the the strength that those documents gave me when I heard of Father Coughlin on the radio demonizing uh, Jews and uh, FDR rights—you know, people who were uh, Democrats in those in in those years. Uh, when I, I, I was a kid in the Depression, my folks didn't have the money to send me to college. I won a scholarship uh, in, the, in the American Legion, the first American Legion oratorical contest. So long ago, the word oratorical is in the title. Uh, and my subject was the Constitution and me. And I thought maybe because I was a member of a minority the Constitution meant a little bit more to me than it might have meant to the member of majority. So that was my, th- and I won a scholarship to Emerson College. I was in Emerson College for a year when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, and I enlisted as quickly as, as my mother could let me, having told me she would die if I enlisted. <laughs> uh, when I was ready to see her go, <laughs> I enlisted. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, I I enlisted. Uh, I flew 52 missions with the 15th Air Force. I bombed the shit out of Germany. And uh, I wasn't gonna say this, but it occurs to me, my wife and I were in uh, Italy within this last year and we decided to fly while the Emersons were still ambassadors in Berlin to fly to Berlin We were flying to Berlin. I had flown there once before from Foggia, Italy. It was the longest mission in the European theater in World War II, as it happened. And and I remember, and remembered as we were approaching Berlin. I was the radio operator and I had the top gun. I was the guy who looked over and uh, was closest to the bomb bay and I, could let the, I was the one who let the pilot know that the last bomb had dropped from the bay. But I had the experience, all the times we bombed, of looking over, watching our bombs fall, and then gathering with the hundreds of bombs from the other planes, and I'm watching 400 bombs dropping. And I think, what if one of those bombs misses a target, hits a farmhouse? And I imagine people sitting around a table in a farmhouse. And it's hard to say the rest of this without gritting my teeth because that's what I felt, and it makes me feel that way every time. But I said, screw them. Screw them. I didn't care. Let the bomb hit a farmhouse. And uh, some hours later on the way back, or maybe the next day, I don't know, but... I imagine somebody coming to me with a piece of paper and a pencil and saying, Mr. Lear, if you sign this, you will forever mean that you didn't care if that bomb hit an innocent family. And uh, I would never sign that. I find myself later praying to God that I would never say that because, thank God, I've never been tested. I don't know, but I know that I had that, I had that much hate much ability to see I mean I, I haven't got the words for it but I recognize that as part of my humanity which is our common humanity and I know that I'm capable of the worst of anybody else's behavior I just hope I won't go there uh, I had no idea it was gonna be here at the start of this you know here in my story yeah. at the start of it But, uh, you know, I think what I feel so great about being here with Mr. Khan is the recognition of our common humanity. Uh, It's what pulls, for me, people from the American way together. It's for me what has motivated most of what I've been up to in my life. Just understanding that we are
3: one. Let me build on, thank you. Let me build on the entirely deep emotions of your National Wartime Service, and then of course, alas, your son, who served Mr. Khan in America's military. Do you think that it would be useful bringing us together if there were a national service expectation, not just military, but in some ways, young people having the expectation.
2: Yes, sir. It will be amazingly, amazing moment in this nation's uh, history and in nation's life. Let me share why I say so. Since speaking at DNC, waving that constitution, we have had, literally, media from all corners of the world. National service and service to our country comes into play in that. People from television from China, from South Korea, Japan, Uh, Europe, Austria, Germany. (coughs) German papers have written articles about that moment and about the values. rest of the Europe asking one question. First, I could not figure it out. Can you show us the 14th Amendment? What is it? Korean television station Producer asks that question. Al Jazeera folks ask that question. Others are asking the same question. Uh, We want to film that. Can you read it to us? And I read it to them. I begin to wonder why they are asking the same question. So I ask them Are you asking this from your own? the television producers, the anchors, the journalists that came to our home. And they said, oh, no, no, no. They begin to show me the questions that their audiences have asked to ask, meaning they want to know what is in 14th Amendment. Mm -hmm. What is this equal protection of law? What is this due process that he talks about? What I mean to say is that the rest of the world is audience to our values regardless of this clown show in Washington, <laughs> regardless of that, we have, we have, we have had the best dignities enshrined in a document for a nation. The rest of the world studies it, reads it, wants to know about it. So if we could bring our youth together on that issue, again, Fully realizing that this moment is short. It is two minutes of lights and cameras and all that. What could we accomplish learning from your examples, learning from your teachings? We decided that we will adopt middle school as our schools. We will go to them. We will talk about our story. What took us to this stage? What has continued to make us speak. We went to one amazing interest by seventh and eighth grader, wanting to know about Constitution, wanting to know how come we just arrived here and they find so much interest in our uh, representation of the Constitution. Teachers telling us that since we told them that you and Mrs. Khan will be coming to their class, their interest in Constitution has grown. They are reading it. They want to ask this question, that question. What I mean to say is that by indulging our youth through public service, regardless of parties, regardless of their political affiliation, it will be a service that this nation will cherish in history for the rest of its life, and your organization. The reason I so humbly appreciate your invitation and I join is for that purpose. You are training our future leaders.
1: But we're not. What we should do is use you as the beginning of a movement to bring civics back to public schools and teach them. And maybe we start here tonight.
2: So we we have quickly put together a small book, Our Constitution that will be published in November. And we want to make it available and make it our mission to go school to school, middle school to middle school, to raise their affection towards the Constitution. I want to to be a part of that. Thank you, thank you.
3: And uh, when you brought the Declaration of Independence around America, what did you learn from that? Oh my God. Well, first of all, a lot of people don't know that it was a huge
1: operation, Uh, Home Depot two days after four days after I bought that I and I with the intention of traveling it I had no idea how I was gonna get it done but the man was running Home Depot at the time whose name I hope I remember before I finish this sentence (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Nardelli Nardelli, Bob Nardelli Uh, he was coming to Los Angeles and uh, he had two sons he was taking Mm -hmm. around to look at colleges it was a Sunday morning. I don't know how he happened to call me or I happened to be on the phone with him, uh, but I, oh, he knew I had just bought a copy of the declaration. Anyway, on a Sunday morning in my office, uh, make a long story short, I talk about the declaration, my plans for the declaration. How much money do you need? I had no idea. I said, $30 million. He put out his hand. He said, you have 15 of it.
3: Mm-hmm. Cool.
1: And the post office gave me a 16-wheeler and a driver for a year and a half or two years. David Rockwell, the wonderful uh, uh, designer, architect, designed this glorious, uh, I mean, it was just amazing. This, uh, it was big for, to fill out the uh, federal building in, uh, in uh, Salt Lake City at the start of the Summer Olympics that year huge there. I had the joy of uh, George Bush on television, a short clip of him saying, I'm I'm speaking at the opening of the Olympics, uh, within 30 feet of a copy of the Declaration of Independence. Uh, Norman Lear brought it here. We don't have a lot to agree on, but we you agree on that document? <laughs> Loved it. Yeah. Uh, But it
3: has the greatest
1: sentence probably ever written. I had the joy to answer the question of watching people in small and large cities who have stood in line for 90 minutes to get to look at that document crying when they got there, holding kids by their hands, teachers who are crying because they dreamed of taking their class to D.C. if they could find the money for it. Uh, and never, and here was one of those documents. Here. Not only one of those, doc, but the Declaration. Mm-hmm. So it was glorious. We did 50 states, and uh, as I promised myself, my little family foundation was uh, was having difficulty because the money was going after 10 years in 50 states, and I sold it. Mm in order to sit here
3: tonight. (laughs) (laughs) But it did. You went around the country. It has, as I said, that great second... We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men Yes, it And it is is something that creates a sense of real patriotism. And yet, in our political and partisan ways, even patriotism has become divisive. And frankly, the Democratic Party has trouble... Ca- recapturing patriotism the way you did in the '80s because we are cursed with reason,
1: <laughs> and the and the others speak in bumper stickers. Uh, you know, I, I I I think a lot about when World War II was over, coming back as a GI. We had every reason in the world to be so bloody proud of ourselves. Uh, we shouldn't have won that war when it started. We were not in any condition to go and do what we did, but we did it. And then uh, whoever it was that came up with what they called the Marshall Plan to get, help Europe get back on its feet. My God, we were the good guys. I mean, we really had reason to be proud, but that did not make us God's chosen. And what we were fed by corporate america media america but that's corporate america over time was like we were god's chosen we're all god's chosen and so then how do you reinvent the
3: narrative of patriotism
1: you've got to start by by helping people understand again what those this blessed man talks about what those uh guarantees promises mean to them we haven't kept those promises for too many americans you know, for we haven't kept them for too many Americans. Uh, they're there. They are what what we believe in, what we believe in wholeheartedly, but not so wholeheartedly that we've guaranteed them to everybody and that they own them.
2: Yes.
0: Listening to Aspen Ideas to Go. On the show today, constitutional rights advocate Kazir Khan and Norman Lear. Lear produced the television shows All in the Family, The Jeffersons, Maude, Mary Hartman, One Day at a Time, and Good Times. Lear and Khan are interviewed by author Walter Isaacson. Today's conversation was held in June of last year at the Aspen Ideas Festival. The festival is a 10-day event held in Aspen, Colorado. Passes are on sale for the fest and its sister conference, Spotlight Health. You can find video and audio recordings of all of last year's sessions at aspenideas.org. There, you can also register for the 2018 event. Now back to our featured conversation. Here's Walter Isaacson.
3: i asked both of you, what is the role of the media Both the news media and a little bit more broadly, the media in general, in uh, the problems we now face, and maybe helping us out of it. Well, I
1: don't think context doesn't exist in the media. The media does not help the American people, the American viewer, to understand the context of everything because of those what I call bumper sticker, you know, two uh, people fighting about you know on, on tv one show after another where the news is being told to them in bumper stickers there is no con- there Walter Cronkite Eric Severide all of those great <laughs> figures that that gave us a little context it doesn't exist anymore so i think people are poorly served by leadership
2: what have you seen mr kahn is i i am fully aware of where i'm sitting so forgive me for um, answering that question. I, I fully realize your leadership, what you both have done in support of our democracy. This humble citizen, grateful, most grateful citizen of this country knows this much. Press, the media is the fourth pillar of democracy. Is the fourth pillar of democracy. Without independent media, without its contribution, without its unbiased contribution, democracy would be nowhere. <laughs> democracy would be nowhere. And you see today's environment, you see what is taking place. You connect the dots. The very first thing is taking away, is being taken away from us is our right to information what is taking place in Washington DC how our government is how our government is spending the authority that we gave them the authority that we bestowed upon them we have no knowledge of that so gradually that information is being limited being removed being restricted being restricted i based on this humble person's life and experiences, I present to you humbly, that is the first sign of undemocratic rule. Can I just add to that? uh, that What is the
1: media? The media is a part, now not that large a part, of corporate America. Corporate America runs America. You know, I spoke uh, at the, uh, what the hell is the big thing in, 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 in the Redlands, the- Bohemian Grove. Bohemian Grove, oh. thank you. I spoke at the Bohemian Grove a couple it, it's all uh, Jim, I mean, wonderful people, but all to the right. But I talked about Dwight David Eisenhower. At the time I was there 17 people were running for the candidacy on the Republican side, 17. Nobody invoking the name of Dwight David Eisenhower, the five-star general that led us to World War II, two-term Republican president, and the man, and this is why they weren't mentioning him, who, who warned us about what he called the military-industrial complex. And in his first draft, it was he called it the military-industrial-congressional complex. As he was leaving, that was his warning to us, be careful of this, I see it coming. I think it's overwhelmed us. And that's why civics isn't being taught in school and that's why those values that brought you here that you care so deeply about, that you speak so brilliantly about uh, and passionately, uh, that's why we don't hear about them. They're not taught in school and we don't have leaders who are invoking those, the memory of those words all the time.
3: But when you did all in the family, you were able to use a medium, leave aside, I don't even remember who owned it or whatever, but you were able to use it to bring people, to break down barriers that were cultural through both humor and narrative storytelling. Why is that not being done now? Is that a corporate issue or is that a lack of imagination? I think it is a corporate, you know, I don't want to blame it on the corporations because
1: then why aren't the writers, why don't we know about a lot of writers who are fighting those corporations in order to get on what they want to get on. Uh, it's a mood in the country, mm-hmm. it's it's lethargy. Uh, it's, a, I mean, it's a total lethargy for me when I hear this man talk because, uh, because I know I'll try to raid a refrigerator before I go to bed, and I'll go to bed tonight, and I'll sleep very well, and I'll wake up tomorrow, and I'll do the same thing I've been doing, uh, unless we go forward with this notion Mm -hmm. of making this a movement about teaching kids
3: what they need to know about why. What rights we have. What rights, yes. And why we have those rights, and how each generation has to enforce them. And you said about Eisenhower, and he doesn't usually get much of a shout out, but he did two other things. One is when we were in a period somewhat like this with McCarthyism, and I, yes. Einstein wrote you know, to his son, I've seen this before, I've seen it with the Nazis, I've seen it with, and then Eisenhower comes in, and Edward R. Murrow in the press, and suddenly they've moved McCarthy off the stage. And the only time I, I don't know why I'm sitting here touting Eisenhower, but the only the time Walter he, but the only time that he sent in the American troops, it was 101st Airborne Division, and he sent it to Little Rock to enforce mm. the integration of the schools there. And that type of sense of, well, I'm not sure I was in favor of that decision, but it is a constitutional right, so I'm gonna do it. We've lost that now. We've lost Let me. Will you turn up the house lights and run some mics so we can uh, have some questions? So um, after the uh, presidential elections were over, we witnessed the women's march, which is one of the biggest marches in a very long time. And after this event, a lot of people were calling them out and saying, "How dare they protest the president? Even though it's in the constitutional rights." Like, do you believe that they had that they were in the rights and they? Well, do you believe that they were in the right to um, protest in such a manner? Like, do you feel like you support them? Well, I think that's a pretty easy question. Just, I'll well, let you handle it, Mr. Uh, Khan.
2: I, of course, I support. That is the, 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 the pride of democracy. That is what democracy is all about, is that if you disagree, regardless of who it is, especially the government, I am reminded of Thomas Jefferson, so eloquently wrote that the greatest danger to American freedom, the greatest danger to American freedom is the government that ignores the Constitution. All Americans have right to protest if they find their government is ignoring the Constitution. We all have inherent right because we are the beneficiary of the Constitution. We are the beneficiary of Bill of Rights.
3: It's the final clause in one of
2: your favorite amendments. You want to read it? The first amendment I would, ends it, with a... I would like to share something that I share with most of my honored friends. This is the only constitution, the only constitution in the entire world and I have read some where it says Congress shall make no laws, the first five words, please read them one more time with this thought why it is not said Congress has the right to make this law and that law and that law, why it is said, Congress shall make no law. The Congress is being prohibited. There is a prohibition for a purpose. Forefathers selected these first five words for a purpose to remind Congress, the body of majority, that democracy is nothing but tyranny of majority. The only thing that stops majority to be a tyranny is the rule of law. What is the rule of law? Rule of law is nothing but freedom, equality, fairness. So I read to my friends, I apologize if I lose my composure because it is so dear to me. Even today, it is so dear to me to read these dignities again and again Let me. Read the First Amendment, then I will read you the Fourteenth Amendment, Section 1, my most favorite, that I have read to the rest of the world, and I will continue to read it. Here is the First Amendment and the first five words. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, free exercise of the religion or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble. Twice in my life, I had none of this. So I know how it feels to not have. Now that I have, I sacrifice everything. Somebody asked Razala a question. You have sacrificed one son. Isn't that enough? Sit home quietly. Be the private people you are. And you know this mother with hole in her heart says, she says, the way we are blessed in this country, if I have 10 sons, I will sacrifice them. I am in awe of this mother. I am in awe of this mother that finds such a dignity, such a grace that she's willing to sacrifice nine more sons of hers in defense of this Constitution. Let me read you the most favorite part of the, when I got this blessed document, I was so happy to open the box of gifts from from, uh, this festival that made my day. I quickly looked for my favorite uh, uh, amendment, and I turned the page of it. Uh, so here it goes. I apologize if I lose my composure. It's a matter of heart. Section 1 of 14th Amendment. All persons born or naturalized, that's me, naturalized. All persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof, are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. Many nations are not familiar with this concept. What is due process of law? Nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of laws. That sums it up, as far as I am concerned, all the dignities that a human being needs When we are sent on this planet Earth, we are sent with all these dignities. Some of us are able to have them. Most of us, most part of the world does not have them. And it is that that makes this blessed document, this blessed company, this blessed nation, worth standing up for, defending, and sacrificing whatever we have been blessed, whatever we have been given. Thank you.
3: I think maybe uh, well let's I, 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 I hate to not be the: I have two, two
1: years. Yeah.:
3: <laughs> Well, I, I want to see. It, it was such a years. wonderful way to end, but there are questions from younger people here. I'm going to get a couple more questions in. but let us remember, by the way, Mr. Khan, that's a beautiful amendment. And it took a civil war and we haven't made good on it yet, yeah. what, what percentage of Americans have
1: not had the benefits of that 14th, go
3: ahead.
0: Okay. Um, hi, uh, thank you so much for, um,
2: like I've never heard anyone speak about the constitution in this way. Um, and so I really appreciate that and just want to honor that. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm, I'm thinking about um, bringing the constitution and these documents to public schools and thinking specifically about the 14th Amendment. I'm also thinking about the legacy of Jim Crow and mass incarceration and the violence of policing. And I'm thinking about the systemic and systematic displacement of of, marginalized and disenfranchised peoples. And so is that history also going to be taught? And is the oftentimes in my sense and in my experience, the um,
0: kind of emptiness of these promises in these important documents—is that um, how is that going to be dealt with? In
2: Look, I um, I stand where I stand because of the sacrifices of the civil rights leaders. Otherwise, a person like me will not have a right to vote. right to stand up and speak. So I am in full agreement of our, not only acknowledgement, but continuing to pay tribute to those sacrifices. And the only way you can pay tribute to sacrifices is by remembering them, remembering their sacrifice, remembering this, this wonderful gathering and this dignified and esteemed event doesn't call for Uh, uh, my going into details of what my aspiration had been. I shared a brief story with uh, Norman Lear this afternoon, that when you see a blossoming tree, always think, and somewhere in this story is the answer to your question, Always think of those who have watered this tree, who have nurtured this tree, who had planted this tree. So it is all of our past civil rights leaders, leaders of this country that have sacrificed their lives, their liberties, their families, for us to have these dignities, for us to have these rights, So I pay tribute to them. I wish we had more time to go further into detail of the atrocities that have taken place in history. But the moment is such, the time is short. Maybe at another occasion, we will talk more in detail about those matters. But I pay, and I am sure both of my wonderful leaders pay the tribute to all that have sacrificed their lives and their struggle so that we can stand here today and be able to speak. Yeah, uh, yes.
0: Hi. Um so thank you both so much for your talk. It was really interesting. Um so I noticed in your bio, Mr. Khan, that um you said you identify as a Muslim patriot, which I thought I thought was really interesting. So I was wondering how do you deal with like the
1: recurrent or the rising currents of Islamophobia right now and I mean, also, like, Mr. Lear, as, like, being Jewish, I'd like to hear both of your perspectives, like, as part of religions that are usually, like, marginalized. How do you take ownership of a document, like, that was so integral to our nation that wasn't really written for members of marginalized communities?
3: I'm not sure I understood the question. I'm not sure I understood the question. Uh, I'll repeat, and uh, we'll make it, if we can, in the final questions, so I'll let both sure. of you sum up and in some ways it's pertinent to both of you, which is the constitutional guarantees we talked about, you know, are equal rights for all. And yet when you were growing up, you faced the rising anti-Semitism, and when you came, you're facing now a Islamophobia, was the words. How do you make real a document, constitutional rights, that to some extent you were marginalized from during our history. And whether it's the two of you, whether it's being Muslim, Jewish, black, whatever it may be, this is a document that's been written and yet people have been marginalized. How do we make sure that this document continues to live, continues to grow, and continues to try to stop the marginalization of people?
1: Well, if I haven't represented myself in the course of this evening about caring about all of that in realizing again and again and again that too big a percentage, well, any percentage is too big a percentage, but it's a large percentage of people in this country that are not the beneficiaries in the acting out of the 14th Amendment. Right now, that's what I think the question mm-hmm. inherently is about. And I couldn't care more, wish to do anything I can, and uh, I never think of myself as doing enough, ever. Because as I said, I'm, I haven't been arrested. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Unlike- I, I haven't been arrested yet unlike
3: Larry Brilliant, wavy yes. gravy. Yes. Yeah.
1: yes. Anyway, we all have a lot to do. I would love to think we can do it together.
3: Mm-hmm. Mr. Khan.
2: Well, I am fully cognizant of the the indignities that are inflicted upon members of my nation, my country. And I remain fully cognizant of this promise that we will make it better, that it will be better. If our faith of remaining together, remaining for the goodness of this country, For the goodness of these values, we can, based on these various momentary bumps and humps and dark period in our history, if we focus on those, and I don't mean to ignore them, I am fully aware of Thomas Jefferson, the contradictions that exist. I am fully aware of it. I am fully aware of atrocities of today be it against my Muslim brothers and sisters, or my Jewish brothers and sisters, or members of other faith, my African brothers and sisters, my African-American brothers and sisters, I am fully aware of it. Such this moment is moment to focus on the goodness of our nation, our country, so that we can come together under that umbrella. And we will deal with those atrocities. We will deal with those indignities by removing them from the fabric of our nation's history and future. Thank
3: Mr. Khan, Mr. Lear, thank you. thank you.
0: Norman Lear started the organization People for the American Way in 1980. He's the winner of four Emmy Awards, a Peabody, and the National Medal of Arts. Kazir Khan is the father of the late U.S. Army Captain Humayun Khan, who was killed in Iraq. Khan spoke about his son during an impassioned speech at the 2016 Democratic National Convention. His book, An American Family, was released in October. Walter Isaacson is President and CEO of the Aspen Institute. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go on your favorite podcast app or tell your smart speaker, play Aspen Ideas To Go. Follow the Aspen Ideas Festival year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenan and me and recorded and produced by our team at the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.